It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show, James Van It's car con carne. Still in quarantine. Quarantine con carne. Sponsored by C and H Financial Services. As business owners are opening back up, trying to serve their communities, they're faced with a lot of challenges as they navigate through this new normal brought on by the coronavirus. C and H Financial Services is here to help. They offer a variety of project products, products that range from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express as a form of customer payment. C and H Financial Services eTab solutions, easy to set up for your business for online ordering, curbside pickup, whatever. CNH also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs to help you get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact CNH Financial Services, 855-600, that's for the people in Harvey, 2437, or call or go to www.chfs.us. My guest today, oh man, he's a comedian, he's an author, he's an actor, he's a motivational speaker, he's a son of Illinois, he is the pride of Harvey, he is Tom Dreesen. Good evening, Tom. I appreciate that. I appreciate that lending that commercial into my hometown. You know, you got to tie it all together. That, that, that's show business. So, uh, how's your pandemic going? Is it okay? Uh, you know, as a stand-up comedian, you know, I speak for stand-up comedians around the country. We're in, in panic state because you know we're so used to getting up and going on stage and performing. Even when I come off the road, I, I go on weekends to the Laugh Factory and try out new material. But I haven't worked in four months. You know, um, I've been doing you know, this book sale and stuff like that, doing a lot of interviews. And I even did a Zoom thing called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. And I did like almost two hours of stories about Frank Sinatra and myself and what it was like touring, you know, and answering questions from the people. But other than that, <clears throat> you know, this is very difficult for us being locked in like this, you know. I'm sure in that painting right behind you on your Zoom background of you and Frank, that, that's stunning. That, that, that is just a gorgeous looking painting. I give that credit to Marcelo Nira from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, he painted this, uh, he, uh, Frank and I on stage. It, it's, and it's something I treasure. It's a painting. You know, when, I, when, when we worked casinos, uh, when I worked big arenas with Frank, he, I would do my show. There would be an intermission and Frank would go on. But when we worked Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, when I finished my show and said, good night, everybody, as I was walking off, Frank would be walking on and we'd crisscross, and then he'd call me back out for another bow. Tommy, come back out and take another bow. And I'd come out, and a picture was taken of that, and so he just, Marcelo painted from that, and, and I treasure it. It's, it's great, you know. I love it. The new book is still standing, My Journey from <clears throat> Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. First off, never underestimate the value of a good alliteration, which your subtitle has. And speaking of Frank, the book starts with, it would seem a very silver spoon Hollywood moment. You're jumping into a private plane with Frank after a show, heading off to, I think, Chicago, maybe to play the Chicago theater. But it very quickly turns to a very opposite situation. Your formative years in Harvey, living dirt poor in a street gang with a parole officer. The first time you had three meals, three square meals a day was when you joined the service. Skipping over all those details, there's a message here of empowerment. You pulled yourself out of all of that. You became a star. It's kind of like a sneaky way to do a self-help book. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. By the way, it wasn't a parole house; it was a probation house. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, forgive me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I wanted to go in the navy, I dropped out of high school when I was sixteen years old, and and uh, and just I worked in bowling alleys, setting pins, and I started running with a real tough crowd and getting in street fights. Nothing I'm proud of, but it just what it was in that era, that time, you know. And and I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. You know, um, I, I, I shined shoes in taverns, I set pins in bowling alleys, I caddied in the summer, you know, to help feed my brothers and sisters. But I started running wild. And at age 17, I went in the Navy, but my the recruiter thought it was a, you know, a slam dunk. But then the probation officer, John T. Lane from Chicago, decided he wasn't going to let me go in. He was a real mean guy, a real tough guy. <clears throat> and it took some persuading, but the recruiter finally talked him into it. But John T. Lane told the recruiter, you'll regret this because he won't last through boot camp, you know. But I, I did. I lasted four years. I proved John T. Lane wrong. But but he was right. I needed that straightening out. And the military did that for me, you know. Isn't that one of the great motivators, though, when someone tells you you can't do something? Isn't that one of the greatest motivations to turn around and say, oh, no, I got this. You're wrong. Yeah, well, one of, one of my favorite, when I, I give motivation speeches now, as you pointed out, but one of the things I point out to people that sometimes that Sidney Poitier, when he received the Academy Award, it was such an incredible moment. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically was holding that Academy Award and he said to the audience, what a marvelous moment this is. On the way to this moment, there were so many people who said to me, you can do this, Sidney, you can do this. And there were a lot of people who got in my way and did everything they could to stop this moment from happening. And tonight, I thank each and every one of those people equally. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, it's somebody who tells you you can't do it can be just as much of a motivation of somebody who can, you know. <clears throat> so as we're recording this for the audio podcast, we're running this live on Facebook. And Kat just says, he looks great. You do. You've reversed the aging process somehow. <laughs> you know what? This beard, I think. I did a film, uh, two films in a row, one as a priest and one as a, a Baptist minister. But I wanted to grow a beard because I thought the gray beard would look good. Well, it didn't grow in gray. I got gray hair, but my beard grew in dark. Now, all my buddies at the golf course say, you're dying your beard. But I'm not. I'm not. It's really the, co the actual color. And I think it maybe makes it look two years younger. That's all. You mentioned uh, some of your scrappier upbringings or your scrappy upbringing throughout the book. There are moments where the South Sider in you kind of shines through. Like you're not afraid to roll up your sleeves and, and get into it when, when challenged or confronted with stuff. Yeah, you know, but I grew up in a neighborhood and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but but it's true. In, in Harvey, where I grew up at, I never saw intellectual combat. Whenever two guys would get in an argument about the Cubs or the White Sox in a bar, they'd say, outside. That was always the favorite line. <clears throat> All right, outside. You know, and so, uh, and when I was a bartender, I used to serve two beers and break up a fight, you know. Uh, again, it was the, the law of the streets at the time. When I first went in the service and I would see, you know, I'd be aboard ship and there'd be a redneck from North Carolina and a, um, a, a black guy from Detroit and a Jewish kid from New York. And uh, maybe, a, uh, you know, a, a, a beach kid from California, or whatever. But they would get into a heated discussion. And I would say, uh oh, oh, they're going to throw down now. They're gonna... But at the end of the discussion, one would say, you know what? I, 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 I got to think about what you just said. I never heard that. But let me think, think about that. And I thought, wow, I've never seen people get into intellectual combat. You know, it's always physical where I grew up at. So I, I had to learn through the years 
to hold back that, I'm Irish Italian, to hold back that temper of mine, you know. <laughs> Once in a while, people take advantage of, you know, I'm, I'm an easygoing guy, I'm a motivational speaker, but I don't like being pushed around either or being taken advantage of by someone trying to bully me, you know, verbally or physically. <clears throat> well, I, I'll be very polite with you. And I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish social media behaved the way people did in the way you just described. It seems like discourse and mutual respect is completely shot these days. I saw something last night. Candace Owens, a, a black woman, very conservative with um, um, uh, Lesson Hill. Oh, I think it was him in a minute, but, uh, but a black, a black uh, liberal. And they went together. They went at each other for an hour and 40 minutes, not, not, arguing, not talking over one another, but just it was a wonderful, wonderful debate. I remember years ago, Gore Vidal and uh, William Buckley Jr., uh, a guy named David Susskind, would have them on TV, and they would debate. One would speak about liberals, one would speak about conservatives, and at the end, they would shake hands. I, I wish those days would come back. A lot of uh, what you talk about in this book, and certainly you talked about it in Tim and Tom, confronting racism before, you, you, before stardom, certainly during it. Is it insanity to you that we're still having the same conversations today, decades um, later? Unbelievable. You know, Tim Reed and I became America's first black and white comedy team out of Harvey uh, in 1969. We went on stage for the very first time over 50 years ago. And there were riots, and if you remember at that time, the African-Americans were rioting in every major city, feeling disenfranchised from the system, and Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of service, and, and students were protesting, and there were cities burning down, including one of the largest riots in the country was in Harvey, Illinois. <clears throat> and um, they burned several blocks, and the community has never really quite recovered from that. But in the middle of all that, Tim and I were going across America trying to make people laugh. There were no comedy clubs in those days. So we worked all black clubs in the North and South and all white clubs in the North and the South. And, and uh, where I'd be the only white guy within three or four miles and, and Tim would be the only black guy in, in the white neighborhoods. But we persevered across the country. But I always say, you know, once upon a time in America, there was a young black man and a young white man who were so naive and so idealistic, they honestly believed if they could just get people to sit down and laugh together, maybe, maybe they could live together. You know, and so we didn't preach, but anywhere there was racial tension, we went there. We did colleges and we did high schools. We did 11 prisons in one year, you know, and we just were trying to make people laugh. And, and uh, I'll, I'll close this part of it with this story. To my grave, I will always be humbled and honored by this. Tim and I will say the same thing about this. I can't tell you how many places we went to to shows that afterward, a black kid would come up and say, you know what, I've got a white friend that I'd like to reach out to, but if I do, the brothers are gonna wear me out. But after watching you and Tim tonight, I'm gonna reach out for my white friend. Then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I got a black friend, and I wanna reach out to him, but if, but if I do, the white guys are gonna re, you know, call me names or, or give me a bad time. But after watching you and Tim, I'm gonna reach out to my black friend. That meant more to Tim and I, and it does to this day, than any award you could possibly bestow upon us. You know? And that creative partnership split, but you remained friends. I mean, I know that you mentioned in the book there was some weirdness when Tim kind of went his solo direction, but you, you were able to circle back and, I mean, it's like going through a war together. I mean, coming up together in comedy, you have that bond forever. No question about it. Tim, Tim and I stayed together six years, and the irony was 
when we first decided we wanted to become a comedy team, I, the only link I had to showbiz in Harvey, Illinois, there was a black singing group called the Dells. And they had like five or six gold records, Oh, what a night, stay in my corner. <clears throat> and they were our heroes. And, and, and the lead singer grew up right across the street from me, Marvin. And so I, Tim and I went over to Marvin's house to talk about, we want to be a comedy team. What do you think? And he, he said, oh, I think it's a great idea, black-white comedy team, no one's ever done that before. But as we were leaving his house, he said, you know they're going to try to divide you and break you up. And we stopped and we said, who? He said, they. We said, who? He said, whoever. They call it divide and conquer. Sometimes people do not like to see a black guy and a white guy getting along. And so they'll do what they can to divide you. And we, Tim and I said that no one's ever going to divide us. But ironically, it was a woman, that, a, a, a woman singer, Della Reese, who ended up breaking up the act. She, she uh, took Tim under her wing and took him out to the West Coast. He ended up getting a divorce. And, and, uh, and, and, and you know, I'm not telling tales out of school. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White, and we talked about it there. But we always remain friends, even during the breakup. Um, and, and today are the best of friends, and, and, I, and I love him to death. Everything I own, everything I have, everything I'm about is because I met Tim Reed, and he would say the same about me. His children call me Uncle Tom, you know. <laughs> and looking at this from an even greater glass half full perspective, had that not happened, the world would have never had Venus, fly, Venus flytrap. That's right. So yeah. another He went on, yeah, you're right. He went on to Tim Reed after the team broke up. I did my first appearance on The Tonight Show like a year later, and it motivated him to give up what he was doing. And he, he went down, he left the house of the woman he was staying with, and he went down and, and started concentrating on his career. And he became Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati, a Downtown Brown on, on Simon & Simon, so many sitcoms. And finally, a Sister Sister, he played the father, and, uh, and he's a director now. And, uh, and, and I talked to him just this morning, you know, I think the world of him. Since you mentioned your first Tonight Show appearance, there's a great, probably the best piece of advice you can get from the book when you're confronted with something that could be stressful or unnerving. Before your first appearance, Ed McMahon told you, have fun. Basically, just take the piss out of yourself. Just do what you do and be who you are. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things <clears throat> I tell comedians this all the time, but I read hundreds of books on the powers of the mind when I was in the service and everything. And one of them was The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, which really helped change my life. But the, to envision yourself going out there having a lot of fun. A lot of people get stage fright because when they start thinking about public speaking, they think of all the things that will go wrong. And then their hands start to sweat, their heart starts to pound. Because the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it. And it works off of images. So when you see yourself out there not doing it, the subconscious mind said, that's what's happening. I would always do the opposite. Envision myself scoring out there, relaxed, having a lot of fun. You know, I would, every time I got a negative thought, I would replace it with a positive thought. However, that being said, the first Tonight Show, there is no describing the pressure. Everywhere you went in America in 1975, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah, you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just want a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but you weren't one now. So the pressure was enormous. 26 million people watched that show in those days. One appearance on that show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. Right. I did one appearance on the Tonight Show. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. A guy named Lee Kerwin was watching that show and, and he, from New York, from CBS. My, I was in the unemployment line with a wife and three kids the day before. 
And the next day, my whole life changed. I never stopped working from that night, and I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But to describe to you, they come and get, first of all, when I finally got The Tonight Show, I got bumped three times. Every time I went there, they ran out of time. Three times in a row. So you're ready. You're, you're prepared. You're ready. It's go time. This is it. This is my moment. And then it's, it's like Lucy taking the football away from Charlie Brown. Exactly. They, they, they put you in makeup. You go up to your dressing room. They call you down to your dressing room. You go to the green room. You're waiting. And they say, we ran out of time. You go home a week later. You come down. They put you in makeup. You go up to your dressing room. You come down. They ran out of time. Three times in a row. On the fourth time I went there, I'm in the makeup room. And Fred DeCorda, but a producer came in. And he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> now, now, you get a lump in your throat. I'm behind that curtain. They t- do that long walk from the green room. They come and got me in from the green room. And uh, Bert Convy was singing at the time. Carol Burnett was on the show, too. And, uh, and, and they take that long walk. Now, when I became a veteran of the Tonight Show, everybody backstage, the stage answers, hey, Dreeson, how's your Cubs? Hey, how, you know, how's Chicago? You been to Chicago? They all talk to you. But that first time when you're walking that long walk, they turn their back and they whisper. Uh, it's his first time. It's his first time. You know, they put you behind a curtain. You know, Doc Severinsen's playing the music, playing because they're in commercial break, and then the music stops and your heart stops. <laughs> Twenty-six million people are about to see you, and not only that, you. My mother had everybody in Harvey, Illinois, back there. So, my mom, I can't even go home. And and you hear Carson say, "We're back now," and I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on the Tonight Show. That one beautiful line. I'm Johnny Carson. Thank you, Johnny. I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He, he, said, he warmed him up for you. Oh, yeah. And you walk, it's, you walk out and into that, they open a curtain, Tom Dreeson, you walk out there and now the bright lights hit you and you can't see the audience and you hit your mark and, and I did a joke and I got a laugh and I did another joke, it got a laugh, I did another joke and then I heard Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon laughing and now, anyhow, uh, I, I got like eight applause. I closed with saying, you've been a wonderful audience. Show business is a tough life. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show. Show business is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you please? And I walked off, you know. You couldn't tell that joke today. Why couldn't I? I I think the Jewish thing might be insensitive. (laughs) I just told that joke to a Jewish audience about a week ago, and they thought it was hysterical. Oh, there you go. All the guys said, have a little. So compare, if you can, I get the, the enormousness of Johnny and The Tonight Show. I'm of a later generation. I grew up on Dave. And Letterman, to me, was, he defined how I understood late night television. What was it like doing Dave's show? Well, first of all, he was my buddy. We started out when he was brand new. He saw me come off the stage at the Comedy Store his first night in L.A. And we became, he met me in the parking lot. I'll tell you a funny story. He says to me, the other, he calls me, well, so we've known each other for years, anyhow, for 45 years. He said to me the other day, Tom, every time I do an interview or you do an interview, you tell people and I tell people how we met. You came off stage. I was in the parking lot. I said, great show, Mr. Dreesen, a great set. I enjoyed it. And I said, oh, what's your name? You said, Dave. And we became friends. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's boring. It's a boring story. I said, well, that's how it happened. He said, I don't care. It's boring. From now on, tell people that you were on stage. You came off stage, I was in the parking lot, and I stole some material from you, and you beat the hell out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> I said, now, why would I tell people that? He said, because it's a better story. So now, two weeks go by, he calls me, and he said, Tom, do you know the governor of Illinois? And I said, no, I met him, but I don't know him. 
He said, I said, but I know the Senate Majority Leader, you know, John Cullerton. He said, well, here's my problem. It, it, it's, it, I'll try to make this story short. His wife, Regina, had a woman friend in Chicago who had a son that was autistic, a, an adult. And the autistic adults were plant, they had a plot of land. They would plant corn and beans and tomatoes and stuff. And when it came into fruition, they gave it to the homeless. Well, the state was going to take that property away or something. So Dave said, I need to talk to somebody. So I called John Cullerton. And I asked, John said, oh, Tom, tell Dave not to worry about that. We're working on that, that piece of legislation, and it'll be taken care of. I said, John, would you tell Dave that? Because he was explaining the difficulty of it. And, and he said, but we're going to get it done. I, he, I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to have Dave call you. I said, oh, John. Do me a favor, when Dave calls you, tell him that you're going to help him. And the only reason you're helping him is because Friesen beat the hell out of you in the parking lot of the comedy store. He said, okay. Ten minutes go by, my phone rings. It's Dave. I go, hello. He said, didn't I tell you it's a better story? I told you that's a better story. That's amazing. You mentioned joke theft. This is something that uh, I, thought, I thought was particularly memorable in your book. I, I guess it's something, as a, a fan, I just never thought of, but the idea that comedians steal other comedians jokes and you talk about uh, a situation where robin williams repurposed one of your jokes on a mork and mindy episode i've got to think as bad as it might have been when you were coming up in the age in the youtube era for comics it's got to it's got to happen more than we realize oh it's it's terrible you know I, jokes that i did that i wrote original jokes when you did the tonight show you, you you had to do a new six minutes every time you did it johnny didn't want you doing two guys going to a bar jokes, not joke jokes. He wanted to do monologues of original material. So I was in a constant state of writing fresh material. Well, I would go on The Tonight Show and, and it would air at, at 11.30 that night. Writers would send it into disc jockeys all around the country. Guys would sell my jokes sometimes to Lubbock, Texas, to Chesterfield, Ohio, you know, morning drive guys and stuff yeah. like that. So you couldn't do anything about that. And, and, you, and to this day, you can't. I oftentimes on the internet, I see people jokes that I wrote that they're, 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 you know, not people you can. So, you know what? I, I used to upset me because in the old days, television was only this big. Yeah. ABC, NBC, CBS. Today, there's 800 stations they can choose from. They can't steal your delivery. They can't steal your personality. They can't steal your timing, you know. Uh, so, you know, and by the way, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't, if somebody told me, somebody took some of your monologue the other day, I said, well, I hope they made it funny, you know. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So I want to get to Frank Sinatra, but before that, I, I think it's worth mentioning your time with Sammy Davis Jr. Reading about this in the book, it seems like your time touring with Sammy really enabled you to be successful Sinatra. It seems like you learned a lot. Well, I did, Sammy, when I, first, when I first did my first appearance on The Tonight Show, like I told you, I went from the unemployment line to all of a sudden, here's the shows I was doing. Johnny Carson, Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore, uh, uh, Merv Griffin, uh, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was the only white comedian ever to do Soul Train. I later did an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy's Crazy. Yeah. All of these shows I was doing, and one of them was Sammy and Company. There was a TV show that Sammy had out of, Lake Tahoe out of Harris called Sammy and Company. And I got on that show and I did a monologue about growing up in Harvey playing basketball on an all-black basketball team, playing football on an all-black football team. I was doing those routines. Sammy fell off the couch laughing. He took me over when I finished my monologue and he ended up telling me, he said, I'm going to take you on the road with me. And he did for three years. 
But in those three years, he taught me, I would sit in the wings and watch him every night, how he approached the stage and everything. He gave me advice and counsel. He was just a dear, wonderful friend. And finally he told me, he said, it's time for you to move on to other acts, you know. And I, I started touring with Smokey Robinson and Natalie Cole and Gladys Knight and the Pips and, you know, Mac Davis and Tony Orlando and Don and Frankie Avalon and James Darren, all these people. I was working with all them and working with Smokey one time, I see Sinatra at playing at Harris. So I wanted to, you know, see Frank show because I was always a fan. I ran off stage one night when I was working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, ran over to Harris. I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me, a guy named Holmes Hendrickson. He said, Tommy, come here. I went over and he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. And I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard it a million times. He said, hey, kid. And he winked at the vice president and I caught the wink. Hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> That's it. <clears throat> And that was, and they, they gave me a gig one week with Frank. I figured, oh, great. I'll, at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City, New Jersey, I said, I'll, I'll get my picture taken with him. I'll hang at every bar back in Chicago, you know. And um, I figured it'd be a week. The second night with him, he took me out to dinner, he and his wife, Barbara. And uh, after, in the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down. And he said, I can remember like it was yesterday. He said, I, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, oh yeah. And it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year, and a friendship that I'll treasure to my grave. You know, And I miss him every day of my life. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral too. <clears throat> People are fascinated by Frank Sinatra for a variety of reasons, one of which being, he's one of the greatest singers in history, but also- No, no, let me, can I correct you? He Please. is the greatest pop singer of all time. There it is. No, no argument about that. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> but he is of an era where the fourth wall was still up between performer and fan. I mean, we live in an age now where I could tweet at Tom Dreesen, and there's a good chance you'll see what I have to say. But the, those lives, the, the Rat Pack era, I mean, even talking about Sammy Davis Jr. And Frank, these are, these are legends that we, we don't have the inside track on. These days, celebrities are kind of open books. So any little nugget we get from these lives is fascinating to us. And, and I, I couldn't ask you enough questions about Frank, to be honest with you, but talk about being on the road with him. You talk in the book about how he, he'd be the last one to go to sleep. He'd be up all night. He'd be drinking bourbon. I, I can't imagine being a fly on the wall and hearing those stories or hearing those opinions. He, he never went to bed till the sun came up, by the way. And he drank Jack and a splash. Jack Daniels was his drink of choice. He called it a nectar to the gods, you know, but he never, um, uh, he never uh, ever went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal, whether we were on the road or off the road. So, um, you know, touring around the country with him, you know, he wanted you to hang with him, you know, till, till the wee hours of the morning, you know. And, and I actually, you know, I, I didn't mind it because I knew this was the end of an era. I toured with Sammy Davis. I, I did Dean Martin shows and played golf with Dean and, and, uh, and, you know, did some shows with Dean as well. And now I was with Frank. And I knew it was the end of an era. And, and I didn't want, I, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime uh, in the 14 years I toured with Frank because, I, I, like I say, I knew this was, the, the, this was an era that was never going to come back again. And I wanted to be a part of it, you know. 
And I don't regret one moment of it. The, staying at his home six times a year, he had a compound down in Rancho Mirage that was a big, huge, a huge compound with a you know, tennis court and swimming pools and all the other things. But on the outer perimeters were bungalows called New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way, named after songs. And in the, in, in the his house guest, like the first time he invited me down to his home, you know, it was Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, Kirk Douglas and his wife, Anne, uh, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, Sidney Portier and his wife, Joanne, um, Clint Eastwood and whoever he was dating at the time, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, Angie Dickinson. And, and then they, they would sit around till two, three in the morning and before they'd go to bed, but Frank would be there till dawn. And they would talk about the show business and the movies and the film. And these, I would sit back there and, Pinch myself. These were people I saw in the Harvey Theater when I was a little boy, you know. <laughs> and they're talking to me like I'm up here. So anyhow, Tommy, listen, now when you do stand-up, and they'd ask me some question, and I, you know, and, and I never let them ever know how much in awe of them I was. Or, or Frank, I wouldn't let him know how much in awe of them I was. I just, you know, because uh, they had enough fans. They didn't want fans. They wanted exactly. to They wanted yeah. a peer. Yeah. And, and I, I, for me, to be even considered a peer in that group, you know, uh, it was amazing. Also, he had guests like, you know, Isaac Stern, and he had uh, Alan Shepard, the first man in space, and on the fifth lunar mission, landed on the moon. And these were just fascinating nights where we could, I could ask them questions, you know, and, and he would tell me, they would tell you things. It's some things I'd never repeat because it was told in, in privacy, you know. So what years do those 14 years cover? 1982 um, to 1996, to the very last time he ever appeared on stage. <clears throat> so I, I saw Frank once, and I was very young. It was at uh, Poplar Creek. It was in 1990. And I, I, again, I was very young. One of my lasting memories is he didn't play That's Life, and I wanted to hear that. That was my, one of my lasting memories because I was young, and that was one of the Frank songs I knew as a kid growing up. But I, I remember even as a kid realizing I'm lucky to be here. Uh, like, like th this is something special. And it was cross-generational, too. I remember, like, there were college kids there there were grandparents there that was really cool that that, that spoke volumes to me he was a living legend if, if even if you didn't like his music for whatever reason when he came to your town how many living honest to god living legends are you going to meet in your lifetime or see in your lifetime true living legends i mean this guy you, you gotta remember he sold out in japan at age 78 he sold out in in like Russia, he sold out in Argentina. He's in Brazil, 175,000 people, the largest audience ever to come to see a single performer, not a group, a single performer. He, you know, forget the fact that he was the greatest pop singer of all time. He was a brilliant actor. He won the Academy Award and never took an acting lesson. I once said to him one time, I, you know, I, I, I was sitting with all these great actors that I just told you about, and they were talking about acting and directing. And I said to Frank, I was curious when they, they were play, paying such great reverence to Frank. And I, I just curious, I said, Frank, who'd you study with? Because we all, I studied acting. Everybody tells you who they studied with. I, I was curious who he studied with. I said, Frank, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. This guy won the Academy Award and from here to eternity, he should have won it in The Man with the Golden Arm. What about the movie Suddenly where he played an assassin? What about the movie Manchurian Candidate? Oh, yeah. That's why Frank was so phenomenal. When you gave Frank a, a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? 
He would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. You felt that. And the joy of his songs. Come fly with me. Let's fly away. You know, he, he was a, he was one of a kind and, and there was never one like him ever before in the business, you know, a singer. He danced with Gene Kelly for God's sake, you know, now I want to rewatch Manchurian Candidate. It's been a while. That's that's an all-time classic. Oh my gosh. Uh the book, the the new book, it's out now. It's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. He is the pride of Harvey. He is Tom Dreesen. Uh before I let you go, are you are you excited by the prospect of baseball coming back end of the month? Yeah, by the way, you can get the book on Amazon because everybody says, Where can you get the book? Just go to Amazon. It'll be at your house in two days. They're amazing, Amazon. Oh yeah. The book is the book is doing real good. Yeah, you know, there's a chapter in the book about the Cubs and about me being bat boy for the Cubs when I was a grown man. Jim Fry let me be bat boy every year for like three or four games. But uh, there's something about, you know, baseball that just brings us together. It's a, it's, you, you drive into a neighborhood in Chicago, you come to a stoplight, and there's a ballpark on your right. And you walk into this Wrigley Field, oh, my God, and you're going to sit in a seat that your great-great-grandfather sat in, that your great-grandfather sat in, that your grandfather sat in, that your father sat in, that you're sitting in, your son was sitting in, and you're all gonna watch the same game. And for a moment, time stands still. In this rat race of life when you're on, running all the time at Wrigley Field, or Comiskey, I shouldn't say Comiskey Park, shows how old I am, you know. Hey, um, we still call it Comiskey, that's fine. I know, and it's something, yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf's a real good buddy of mine, and, he, and even though I'm a Cub fan, he brags me, but I love Jerry. But anyhow, my point is, is that you, you're going to, we're all in a hurry in life, but when you go there, time stands still. We're going to watch the same game that our great grandfathers watched, you know, and, and uh, it's just the, the baseball that we can't go to a ball game now. It's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's awful. I, I, I wish there was something we could do about it. I don't think, to be honest with you, I hate to be a, I'm, I'm a positive guy. I don't see how it'll ever be the same. We're going to have to wear masks. Even say they find a cure tomorrow and everybody's vaccinated. People have become OCD all around the world. They're not going to want to sit in crowds again. People are going to be uncomfortable bumping shoulders with someone they don't know. Right. And, and comedians, we need that audience there to get our electricity going, to get my energy out to the audience and back and out to the audience and back. If you put five over here and five over here and nine over there, I'm sorry, we can't create that, that energy that, that we need. You know, I can do it. But it doesn't work as good. In the same way in ballparks, you know, I, I, I really worry that it's going to take a long time before we get back to normal again. You know? Although I have to say, even if you're not in the ballpark, there's something, I don't know, reassuring or comforting, knowing that if, I, if I'm having a bad night or I've got nothing going on, I could turn on TV and just check out for three hours and just sit and watch the ball game. I, I find that very relaxing. You're right. It's a great escape, isn't it? It's, it's, it's entertainment and it's a great escape. It, you know, that I, I remember, I remember as a kid, you know, when the Cubs won, I felt good the next day, you know, it was really kind of like a day when they lost, I, you know, they, that's how much they mean to you. you know, I think what it is, Chicagoans, you know, we fight the weather, we fight the storms, we fight the cold, we get up in the morning and the car didn't start and you, then you get your neighbor to jump you. Now you're on your way to work and it's snowing, you're up the Dan Ryan Expressway and, you know, all the hardships we go through. But in, when the Cubs come to town, when the baseball season starts, you know, it's, it, or when the Bears win, you know, the Bears win, it, then it, it just makes everything okay. So how much are sports a big part of our lives, you know? It's amazing to me how much Chicago is hard-coded into your DNA. Just hearing you 
rattle off what it's like to live in Chicago. You haven't lost sight of any of it. No, you know, I, I, I always get that expression. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it. People say he never forgot where he came from. But if you grew up like I grew up, eight brothers and sisters in a shack and holes in our shoes. And if a window broke, you stuff a rag in it. You know, the way I grew up and, and then you're, you know, growing up loving the Cubs and loving the Bears and the Bulls and the Blackhawks. You know, I don't know. It's just, how, how, how do you ever forget that? How do you ever forget where you came from when you, you know, Chicago is a wonderful city. It really is. Coming from where you came from, does that inform a lot of your charitable efforts? Because it seems like you do so much for charity and have throughout your career. Is that just the results of here's where I came from and you trying to, I guess, pay it forward? Yes. And I'll tell you why. When I lived in that shack, both my parents were alcoholic at one time. My mom was working in a bar. My dad was drinking all the time. Every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, the local civic groups, the Moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks, um, the Knights of Columbus, they would bring baskets of fruit and ham and turkey and oranges and apples and tangerines and things that my brothers and sisters and I never had never seen, you know, we didn't see that. And they would bring it and my mother would say, no, my husband has a job. We don't deserve that. Thank you. And us kids were trying to get around the door to get at the help of goodies. But she made a point that I never forgot. She's right. He had a job and he should have been taking care of us. And the other thing, it wasn't the government bringing us food. It was people helping people. That's what Americans are about. If you get out of their way, they won't let their neighbors starve. The churches, the, 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 the civic groups, that's what America's about. And, and, uh, and I, I just never forgot that feeling, you know. And so, yeah, if, I, if I'm free and I'm available and you have a charity and I can help you, if my presence there could raise a couple of dollars, my few jokes, then I'm glad to be a part of it. I love it. All right, Tom Dreesen, you are you're a legend. You're you're a delight. You're you're all around good human being. Uh, the new book is still standing. My journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra available on Amazon. If you want, you can read it tonight. Get it on Kindle. That's what I did. Just well, thank you. A helpful hint. Uh, and I want to thank everyone who's been watching on Facebook Live. I'm going to kill that stream now. And thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview.